the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Today on Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. Real love is calling, listen, truth opens up your eyes. Mercy is waiting for you with every sunrise. Bear with me on this. Don't cast stones. There's actually nothing in the Bible that prohibits unbelievers from receiving communion. You know what it does prohibit? It prohibits believers from taking it in an unworthy manner. An unbeliever who receives communion in ignorance is better than a believer who receives communion with indifference. That's the sin. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through 1 Corinthians. For an unbeliever, communion has no meaning. It's little more than a mysterious snack. As Pastor Gary explains in today's message, there is nothing sinful about a lost person partaking of the Lord's Supper. In fact, it may even give them a physical demonstration of what Christ did for them and offer a stepping stone towards faith. The only time taking communion is inappropriate is when a believer partakes without aligning their hearts with God's. It's a physical reminder of what Christ has done for you, and it should not be taken lightly. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 11 with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. This unleavened bread, this bread without yeast, is a picture of my life without sin that I'm laying down for you and for the sins of the world. Then he takes the cup. He says, this cup is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you. Drink all of it in remembrance of me. What new covenant? New covenant. Listen, your Bibles are separated into Old Testament, New Testament. Same words. Old covenant, new covenant. The old covenant is a system of works. You strive to be good enough to get to God. The New Testament is about grace. That we can't do enough good works to get to heaven. That's why Jesus dies on a cross for us. So that as many as believed in him, to them that received him, he gave the right to become children of God. What we could not do for ourselves, Jesus did for us. Pays the price for our sins. When Jesus is on the cross, you see, he assumes the sins of the world. He takes our sins upon himself, past, present, and future. It's this mysterious, miraculous moment. But on the cross, at that moment, Jesus bore the sins of the whole world. He became the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. He was righteous. He had committed no sin. But he became, the Bible says, he became sin for us. 
that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's an amazing thing, and it is somewhat mystical in the sense of that it is hard for us to grasp with our human minds, but in that one moment on the cross, your sin, my sin, everything you've ever thought, done, did, or shall do was placed on Christ. And he assumed the punishment intended for us, Isaiah tells us, so that by his stripes, by his crucifixion, we are healed, we are completed, we are made whole. So that now if you believe in what Christ did for you, you don't have to suffer the consequences for your sin. Though all of us should. All of us should end up in hell for what we've done. But God made gracious provision for us and said, I'd want none to perish. No, not one. I want all to come to repentance. And so God gives his son Jesus to die on a cross and says, now I will put all of your sins on my son So that if you believe in him as the atoning sacrifice for your sins, the great exchange, his righteous life for your unrighteous life, he assumes our unrighteousness, takes it on himself on the cross. God says, now, if you believe that my son has paid that for you, by faith in him, you can have your sins forgiven and go to heaven when you die. Somebody say amen to that. Amen. Amen? Now, this is what Jesus does. See, he takes these Passover elements. This is why we have to understand the history to understand the, the present. He takes these Passover elements, unleavened bread, the cup, which in those days would have been wine, but it would have been watered down. It probably wouldn't have even been alcoholic enough that it would have made anybody drunk. But that's a whole other discussion as well. And he takes these elements and he says, now, I want you to, to, to know and understand these elements are symbolic of me, my life, my body, my life without sin, and my blood, the cup, a representation of my blood that I will shed on the cross for you. And so Jesus then doesn't change the meaning of Passover. He expands it. He says, yes, there's a real historical thing that happened in 1450 B.C. when God delivered the Jewish people free. So that's unleavened bread. That's Passover. But those events were pointing to a greater deliverance, the deliverance that we would experience through the sacrifice of Jesus. Everything in the Old Testament points to the fulfillment in Christ. Graham Scroge once said, you cut the Bible anywhere and it bleeds. It's all about Jesus. Old Testament and New Testament alike. Now, this is what communion is all about. And so that's the background to it. Uh, Those of you who uh, are taking notes, understand, let me get my own notes together. Um, I want to just address, if I could, um, a few Uh, questions or misconceptions about communion before we actually find out what we can learn here from the Corinthian church. Okay, so these are just some common questions that I come across and I want to explain these things so that everybody understands what it's about. First, it's not a, quote, a rite of passage. It's a rite of participation. Growing up in the church as I did, I can tell you I never once heard a sermon exclusively devoted to communion, to the Lord's Supper. I didn't know why we were doing what we were doing. Okay, for some of you, this might be the first time you've ever heard a teaching just exclusively devoted to this subject. It is common in traditions, as it was in my own, that you had to go through some kind of a confirmation class before you could take communion. And in my tradition, it was fifth grade. So you're 10 years old, you can't take communion. In the tradition I grew up in, you're not supposed to anyway until you go through confirmation class. And then when you're 10, then you can, now you understand. And so they would teach you what it's about. And then you can, you can partake in communion. But I, I, just, I just want everybody to understand, uh, 
being respectful for everybody's tradition, including my own, it is not a rite of passage. That's the way it's been commonly treated in a lot of churches. It is not a rite of passage. It is a rite of participation, meaning this, that I don't care what your age is. This is about participating and understanding that Jesus Christ died for your sins and rose from the dead. And when you get that, you're welcome to participate. So this is, this is a rite of participation based on relationship that you have with Christ, uh, not because you've gone through a certain class. And I have sometimes people will come to me and say, when do you offer confirmation for kids? So we don't. And they look at me like, oh, you heathen. No, but I, it's, not, it's, just, it's, not a, it's not a biblical thing. It's a traditional thing. It's not a biblical thing. So we, we will teach from time to time in our children's ministry about communion and what it is. Okay, but you as parents, this is partly why we do this here. I want to equip you as parents so you can tell your children what communion is all about. And then it's a personal decision with every family when you want your child to receive communion. But that just becomes a personal decision that you as parents can explain it to your children and then they can participate with full knowledge. It is not a rite of passage. It is a rite of participation. What about unbelievers? I get this question, too. Do you forbid unbelievers from partaking of communion? Now, unbelievers, that is to say someone who doesn't have a relationship with Christ, won't understand what communion is about. I get that. But just bear with me on this. Don't cast stones. There's actually nothing in the Bible that prohibits unbelievers from receiving communion. You know what it does prohibit? It prohibits believers from taking it in an unworthy manner. An unbeliever who receives communion in ignorance is better than a believer who receives communion with indifference. That's the sin. So therefore, you know, we and by the way, I don't know everybody's relationship with Christ. And on any given Sunday or Wednesday night, we don't card you at the door. You have your Christian card with you? Because if you don't, you ain't having communion around here. So we, we let it flow. And, and, if, and I will tell people from time to time, if you don't know what this is about, if you feel uncomfortable, don't feel obligated. But otherwise, there's nothing actually in Scripture that prohibits an unbeliever from receiving communion. In fact, in verse 30 of chapter 11, which we'll get to in a little bit, Paul alludes to the healing virtue of God that is available during communion service. It's very interesting because he says, when you receive in an unworthy manner... Because you're indifferent about this. And he's chastising the Corinthian church. He says, that is why many of you are sick and have fallen asleep. It is a euphemism for death. He says, the reason why a lot of you have died and you're sick is because you've not tapped into the healing virtue of God that is present at a communion service. So I believe that if the healing virtue of God is present at a communion service, which is clear in 1 Corinthians 11, so therefore might also be the saving grace of God's spirit. And an unbeliever might partake and a light bulb might go off, and they come to receive Christ as their Savior. Here's question number three. Is it a sacred day, or what about certain frequency? This is also something that I will get, because people want to know why we don't receive communion here every single time we meet. That, again, is a traditional thing. There's nothing wrong with that, if that's your background. I know some churches where they have communion every single time they get together. And people will point to a passage here in 1 Corinthians 11 that they actually misquote. Here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, in verse 26, Paul says, whenever you do this, in verse 26, just look at verse 26, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. He doesn't say, whenever you meet, you have to do this. He just says, whenever you do this, 
This is the meaning of what you're doing. You're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. So here at Cornerstone, we will basically receive communion once a month on Sunday mornings, once a month on Wednesday nights, with sometimes a little more frequency than that, or sometimes we'll juggle it around a little bit, but there's no prescribed, has to be every single time. There's not, Jesus never said it had to be every single time, and the only little verse is what I just quoted, and it doesn't say every time you meet, it says whenever you do. Whenever you happen to get together to have communion, understand what you're doing. You're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. It is not, therefore, anything that needs to be uh, sacred in the sense of a particular day or a certain amount of frequency. Number four, I hear this too. I'm too unworthy to partake. And so some of you will let the trade go by because you feel too unworthy. And you have also heard, and it is taught in some circles, that if you've got some issues going on between you and God, and then you, you, shouldn't, you should let communion pass by you. Okay, now, now let, just hear me on this, friends. Okay, now think this through. Think this through. I'm too unworthy to partake. Then none of us would partake. Okay? Because in the truest sense, we are all unworthy. There's a great Scottish pastor from the 19th century His name was Robert Murray McShane. Isn't that a great Scottish name? Robert Murray McShane. And he wrote about how one time when he was serving communion in his church in Scotland, that there was this one young lady who bowed her head and just with tears shook her head and let the communion tray go by her. And Pastor McShane looked at her and said, "What, what is wrong? And she said, I'm too unworthy. And he said, eat it, lassie. Drink it, lassie. We're all unworthy. And so it is for ourselves, we need to be reminded that all of us, in that sense, are unworthy. It's for sinners. So partake and be thankful. Number five, I don't want to spend too long on this one, but I do want to just mention this, not to stir controversy, that's not my intent at all, but I want to point out a distinction uh, between us and the Catholic Church, because that is the tradition that some of you come from. In fact, I, I tell people, because the number of people who voluntarily tell me their Catholic backgrounds, I think our church, probably a third of our church, have Catholic backgrounds. And so I just want to point this out, because the Catholic Church believes in something called transubstantiation. So here's what we believe, and I'm going to tell you why and, and distinguish between the two. We believe that when you take the elements the bread without yeast, and the cup of juice, that these are symbols of the body and the blood of Christ, reminders of the body and the blood of Christ. The Catholic Church believes, and this is what the doctrine of transubstantiation is, that the, that the wafer and the wine actually become the flesh and the blood of Christ. And that when you ingest those elements, that there is a miraculous molecular change that occurs, and that wafer actually becomes the body, the flesh of Christ, and that wine actually becomes the blood of Christ. It is called also, not just transubstantiation, it's called the doctrine of the presence. The presence, they believe, of these elements that convert to and become. Now, please hear me on this, because sometimes I'll get emailed when I say stuff like this, and I have people from Catholic backgrounds emailing me saying, that is not what we believe. Yes, it is. Read your own catechism. Okay? It is what the Catholic Church teaches. Okay? So, you know, spare me the emails. It is. 
Okay? It's just that some Catholics don't understand that this is what their catechism teaches. But it is what the catechism teaches in the Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church believes that the elements actually molecularly change and miraculously become the body and blood. Now, why, you might say, why would they think that and, and what would be the basis of that? All right, there is a verse that, that will make you think this. And so I'm going to read it to you. It's John chapter 6. You don't need to turn there unless you want. But it's John 6, 53 to 55. Listen to what Jesus said to them. I tell you the truth. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. That's what Jesus said. So no wonder that the Roman Catholic Church will read those verses and, and, and believe what I just explained to you. Okay, So why is it that we as Protestants don't believe he meant this literally? We believe that when Jesus is talking about eating his flesh and drinking of his blood, that he means it metaphorically or figuratively. So how could, who knows who is right? Listen, there are many things that Jesus said metaphorically and figuratively. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Jesus said those things. Now, I have a pastor friend. He told me one time he actually had a woman in his church who took a hacksaw and cut off her hand. You believe that? So please understand, Jesus did not mean it literally. Like start taking spoons and flipping out your eyeballs and take saber saws and cutting off your hands. Okay? He means deal with sin seriously. That's what he means. But Jesus also said figurative metaphorical things like, I am the gate. He's not a literal gate. He's talking about, I'm the way that you, the entry point to be saved. He said, I'm the bread of life that comes down from heaven. He's not literally bread. Okay. He said a lot of things that were metaphorical. Now, how do we know that what he says in John 6 is metaphorical and not literal? Because when you go about 10 verses further down in John chapter 6, verse 63, Jesus tells us, he says this, the words I've spoken to you are spirit. The words I've spoken to you are spirit. In other words, I'm not speaking to you literally. I'm speaking to you spiritually. So in other words, think of it metaphorically. The last little girl here on the dedication, uh, our granddaughter, okay? I will use a phrase like, you're so cute, I just want to eat you up. Okay? Nobody means that literally when they say that. So what Jesus means when he says, eat of my flesh, drink of my blood, he says, I want you to be so consumed with me that your relationship with me is so consumed with me and by me and for me that I'm your everything. That's what he means. And he spells it out there because he says, the words I've spoken to you are spirit. So I, I don't say all this to bash the Roman Catholic Church. I'm just simply explaining it because some of your backgrounds are different. And I want everybody to understand what our approach is and why we believe this from a biblical standpoint. So, By the way, Leviticus 17, 10 to 12 prohibits the eating of blood. So Jesus would not command something that is a violation of the Levitical law anyway. That said, there are two main reasons why we share communion together. Paul tells us here, because of our relationship with Christ and because of our relationship with each other. If you look real quickly again at these verses, look at verse 26 to 28. He says, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim, it's about proclamation, the Lord's death until he comes. You remember what he did on the cross. And therefore, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, in other words, if you you do this without really thinking about what this is about, who really cares that this is about the crucifixion of Jesus, who really cares, 
That's an unworthy manner. You'll be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. So the two key words, why we do this, is proclaim and examine. It's about proclamation and examination. Every time we break bread together and have communion, you are proclaiming the Lord has died on a cross for my sins. And you are examining your life to realize, is there any undone business between me and the Lord? Because now's the time to really deal with this. I mean, it's good to do that all the time, but... Now's the time to really focus. Any undone business with God? Any unconfessed sin? I need to get my heart right with Him. It's about examination and proclamation. But it's also about our relationship with each other. In verse 29, Paul writes there, and he says, For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now this is an interesting statement. Recognizing the body of the Lord. Every other place in the chapter, whenever he refers to the literal body of Christ, he talks about the body and blood, the bread and the cup. In this example of verse 29, he only talks about recognizing the body of our Lord, which is a broader statement about the body of Christ, meaning the church. What was the church of Corinth guilty of? They were guilty of getting together, and by the way, they didn't have communion on Sunday worship. Not traditionally, not in Scripture. They would have what is called agape feasts, where they would get together and have good old-fashioned potluck dinners. And everybody bring their chicken. Oh, Kentucky Fried Chicken. Praise God for that man, <laughs> Colonel Sanders. And they'd get together and they'd have agape feasts. And at the end of the agape feast, they would share communion together. But you know what they were doing? This is what Paul says to them. You get together and you have your little agape feast, your little love dinners. And, and you're going ahead and you're eating before everybody gets there. How rude is that? And you're getting drunk. You're getting drunk doing this because you're more interested in just having a dinner together and may the wine flow than you are recognizing the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so you're getting drunk and you're eating without waiting for each other. You have no regard to your fellow brother and sister around you. And they might need your love and your prayers. You know what's good about communion? It's a time to think about the person to your right and the person to your left and recognize how much we need each other and how much we should pray for each other and how much we should love each other. Because one of the things that this church gets rebuked for is their indifference to God and their indifference towards each other. We're just going to get together and have a good old chicken dinner. We don't really care if you're late or on time and we're going to drink until we're drunk and we don't really care what you might be going through and we don't really care what is wrong in your life. We're just all about me and eating and getting drunk. And Paul says, you guys are a mess. You need to stop and realize this is about proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. You ought to examine your hearts. You ought to take a look deep inside yourselves. Come clean with God. And then recognize the body of the Lord, the, the brothers and sisters around you. And pray for them. And love them. And encourage them. And be sensitive to them. Because we are all participating together. In fact, he talks about, back in chapter 10... I read it earlier in verse 16. He says, It's not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks, a participation in the blood of Christ, and it's not the bread that we break, a participation in the body of Christ, because there is one loaf. We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. He says there's something unique that happens when the body of Christ gets together. We are all one body, and when we take, partake together of one loaf and one cup, we are strangely and wonderfully united in Christ. And so, as we partake, may we be reminded 
of the unity that we have and the commonality that we have in Christ, though we're different, one body, one faith, one Lord. Amen. The Apostle Paul's message to the church in Corinth was frank and powerful. They needed to make some changes. They knew the truth of Christ because Paul had spent time planting the seeds of truth. They had begun to walk in the ways of Jesus, but they had let lies taint their steps. Those lies are common still today. Is there something you've heard from a spiritual leader that just hasn't sat right in your soul? Don't let it take root. Instead, take it to the Bible and to your Heavenly Father. Allow Him to show you what is right and what isn't, and then grow in His perfect truth and love. We're so glad you joined us today on Cornerstone Connection. Pastor Gary Hamrick will continue teaching through 1 Corinthians when you join us next time. But for now, we'd like to invite you to visit cornerstoneconnection.cc to learn more about this ministry. You'll be able to hear past teachings, connect with us on social media, and learn more about the church this program originates from. If you're in the Leesburg area, we'd love to meet you. Come visit us this Sunday at 8.30, 10, or 11.45 a.m. at Cornerstone Chapel. You'll find directions and more information on our website. Again, that's cornerstoneconnection.cc. We're excited to have you join us. Thanks for tuning in today, and we hope you'll join us again right here on Cornerstone Connection. No place to go, but still you know, you're not Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.